Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. It's the fourth Sunday of five in Lent, and we're looking at John 9, the story that we just read, the story of the man born blind. Each of the main characters in this story, as we follow along with them, have something very significant, very significant to teach us about that dy- the dynamics of a spiritual life. So the disciples' question to Jesus tells us about the nature of suffering. We're going to spend most of our time there. The Pharisees' response to Jesus tells about the nature of spiritual blindness and, and pride. And then finally, the no longer blind man's response to Jesus tells us what we can do about both. So first, the disciples' question opens the scene. We're in John 9, if you want to follow along in your Bible, beginning in verse 1. As Jesus went along, he sees a man blind from birth, and his disciples ask him this question, and see if you can find the theology that's smuggled into the question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned? This man or his parents? What's the theology that was smuggled in? Now, I told the first service, the Star Wars opening that I did last week just went over all of their heads. They were not, they were not driving with it. You guys, especially a little crowd over here, were driving with it. <laughs> but for the first service's sake, I, I changed, uh, I, I went a different way. There's a scene in The Sound of Music. <laughs> uh, most of you know it. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome, Shane. There's a scene in The Sound of Music when, when Julie Andrews' character Maria and then Captain Von Trapp, they finally get together and they sing this song called Something Good. And the words are this, Perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are, standing here, loving me, whether or not you should, so somewhere in my youth or childhood I must have done something good. I must have done something good to deserve this moment. There's a theology smuggled in here. It's the same theology found on the lips of the disciples when they ask who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. If Maria's song is sort of the the peak of the prosperity gospel mountain, then this is the, the valley. In other words, they both encode this theology that assumes that health and wealth and happiness is basically a reward for being good. And conversely, disease and poverty and, and loss are, are hardship. Those are punishments for being bad. You know, Maria and Captain Von Trapp find blissful love. They must have done something good, surely, to, to, to earn it, to deserve it. The man is blind from birth. He or his parents must have sinned. Jesus rejects the premise in verse 3. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So his, his response invites us to cross-examine this smuggled theology a little bit, which may be operating also in us, even subconsciously. Now, to begin with, Jesus' point is not that they never sinned, ever. They had. That's a core belief of all Christians. You know, Orthodox Christians believe all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You, me, everybody. So Jesus' point was that the man's blindness was not a specific result of his parents' specific sin or his own specific sin. He was just simply born blind. Now, if we press it, why? Yes, Genesis 3 pins all forms of physical and emotional and relational and psychological breakdown on, on sin in general. So without sin, no, there wouldn't have been blindness in the world. Suffering of all kinds can be blamed on sin in general. That's why we suffer. Now, why? Do, why? why do some people seem to have fallenness fall on them more than others? Some people seem to have a relatively easy life, 
healthy, wealthy, happy. Other people seem to have it really hard. Diagnoses and loss and struggle. Why? I, I, I do not know. And anyone who claims to know is claiming to know too much. But it isn't. Here's what we do know. It isn't because they are worse than I am or you are. That is an idea the Bible rejects. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All means all. So the playing field is level. Now, Jesus pushes back elsewhere on the same theology. You remember the story in Luke 13 of the tower that falls on 18 people, tragically kills 18 people. He he asked, do you think that they were more guilty than others? Jesus is asking this question. No, I tell you no, he says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, sin in a general sense means the world is broken and fallenness sometimes falls on people. And yet, in the specific sense, it's not so simple. Now there, of course, you've seen ways in your own life, I'm sure, where your own sin has led to the specific consequences for you. So in general, there is a tendency that those of us or those of you who follow God's ways leads to a sort of blessing in life. And conversely, rejecting him in his ways leads to a sort of relational and spiritual and, and emotional difficulty. Yes, so a, a habitual liar might ruin his, his friendships and his family, leaving him isolated and alone. Or a secret life of lust that's just nursed secretly that trains the mind and the body for unhealthy relationships. So yes, there are ways our sin works out with consequences. The point is this, is that not all sin or not all suffering is a direct result of some specific sin in your life so that you deserve punishment. It's clear from Jesus' comments here and on the tower, uh, the tower falling and here on the man born blind that sometimes fallenness just falls on us. Sometimes you can't explain it at all. It doesn't make sense. It just happens. And this is a very difficult truth. It, it, it's, led for, you know, it's led to more than a few people rejecting God altogether, and maybe even more rejecting God's goodness. Surely he can't be good. That's the problem of evil. If he's all good and he's all-powerful, then when bad things happen, doesn't that demonstrate he either isn't good enough to really care or isn't powerful enough to actually do something about it? The so-called problem of evil is, I think, the most emotionally, if not intellectually, difficult question for Christians to process. For us who believe in a good God, it's really difficult. But it's also difficult for atheists who believe in no God because if God is good and powerful, the question for Christians is why? Conversely, if, if you're an atheist, you don't believe in God, there's a, you know, no God means there's no sort of objective agreement, there's no sort of objective evil in the world. It's evil and justice and good. These are just subjective constructs. So when it strikes, what's the big deal, you know? So Nietzsche wrote this 19, in 1883. 200,000 people were killed in, a, in a, um, a tragedy. And this is what he wrote. 200,000 people wiped out in a stroke. How magnificent. Because he was ruthlessly logical. He was honest enough to recognize that if there was no God, then value judgments are arbitrary. Moral judgments are arbitrary. Good and evil is a construct. Violence is natural. So it's a problem for the Christian and for the atheist. Now, in the philosophical sense, the argument against God's existence from evil is more or less seen as no longer particularly compelling in academia. More compelling is what philosopher Alvin Platinga calls a theodicy. A theodicy is a justification of God's ways to humans. So a theodicy attempts to explain the inner workings of God's mind to us. Why should this good man be born blind and that evil one see clearly? God, explain yourself. 
Why should that absent father and, and, and drug-addicted mother accidentally have a baby and this loving and committed couple endure heartbreaking infertility? God, explain yourself. Columbine, Pulse Nightclub, Ovade, Virginia Tech. A terminal illness is diagnosed, a, a chronic pain that won't abate. A child is attacked. There's a, there's a deep loss. Or, or just a decade passes and suddenly you realize that decade is full of unmet hopes and unfulfilled dreams. A theodicy tries to say, well, here's what God is thinking. Great thinkers from St. Augustine to C.S. Lewis have proposed various theodicies, and they're very interesting to engage with. But at the end of the day, I agree with Alvin Plattinga, who says this. He says, Most attempts to explain why God permits evil are tepid, shallow, and ultimately frivolous. Theodicies are not emotionally satisfying. We all know that. And they are intellectually doomed because the entire enterprise rests on an assumption which is, if we can't think of a reason, God must not have one. If I can't think of a good reason, if I can't justify the reason, then God surely can't. This is quite a prideful way of thinking. We see this played out in Job, don't we? That said, when we face great evil or tragedy or loss, what do we do? Well, mostly, often, we are simply left with an ache and a mystery that we must live with. An ache and a mystery for now. And ultimately, we're left with the decision. When tragedy strikes, we can say, how brilliant with Nietzsche. How random. It just happens, whatever. Or we can say, how long, O Lord, with the psalmist? Will we reject God or will we lament with him? That's the choice. Will we choose to trust him or not through suffering? How? How can we trust him in a world where fallenness just falls? We're falling, it just falls, in it, and, and we, we experience these tragedies. How can we trust him? Now, that is, a, that is the question of the Christian life. That is a question I can't answer this morning, can't be answered in a moment. It's a journey of wrestling with God for a lifetime, isn't it? But let's look a little more closely at how Jesus responds to the disciples' question. Why was this man born blind? The message translates verse 3 this way. Jesus said, you are asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. You're looking for someone to blame. Look instead for what God can do. Look at the works of God. So fallenness had fallen on this man. The comfort offered is not an explanation. It's a healing. It's not a tidy theodicy. It's the presence of Jesus with him. So after denying both the peak and the valley of the prosperity gospel and redirecting disciples to the mysterious works of God, it didn't happen because he's a worse person than you. It happens so that the glorious works of God can be revealed. Then what does Jesus do? He spits on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And then he went and washed and came home seeing. Now, Augustine has a very interesting interpretation of this passage. Augustine says that the strange saliva earth salve is a picture of the incarnation of Christ. The saliva is, is the inner power of Christ, his, his, his divinity, mixed with the dust of the earth, his humanity. The answer to evil, he suggests, is not intellectual, but the incarnation. That's the answer we get. It's God with us in the dust. That's it. Now, he and others go on to see the sacraments of the church here. The bread is in the wine. It's a mysterious joining together of Christ's divine presence and the materials, ordinary materials of the earth given to you and I with our sin-sick eyes and our sin-sick hearts sort of rubbed into us, so to speak, 
for our healing. The pool of Siloam, the waters of baptism. In John, it is primarily Jesus who is being called the sent one over and over again. And now Jesus gives his own sentness to this man, sending him to the pool called sent. Likewise, in our cleansing, and our healing baptism, we become sent ones. We are sent by God. Now, following his healing, no one recognizes the man. Isn't that interesting? In verse 9, we read that now the no longer blind man has to keep telling everyone, I am he. He has to go around. People are like, are you, are you the guy? Yes, I am. I am he. I am he. I am he. Yes, I, I am he. And he keeps saying it. And what's the Greek? Ego me. I am. Should sound familiar. The divine title. Most scholars do not see it as a coincidence that having been healed and having been washed and then having been sent by Jesus, he is now no longer recognizable. In other words, he's transformed and he's claiming the divine name for himself, which sounds a little funny, but his life is now hidden with Christ in God. He is in the proper sense now a Christian. What does Christian mean? Little Christ. It is no longer he who lives, but Christ in him. Through union with Christ, his identity is now inseparable. Now, we have just seen there a a, a microcosm of the Christian life. (laughs) That's it. Fallenness falls on us. We all have it. We're all broken. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This man's blind. Another one's this. We're, We're all broken. In the incarnation, Jesus comes to us. God in the dust. In the sacraments of bread and wine and baptism, Jesus offers us his healing salve. Salvator, Savior, healing one. And now, having received him, we are utterly transformed, almost unrecognizable from our old way of life, and our lives are now hid with Christ in God. How many of you are different than you were in high school? Like my, many of my high school friends, thankfully they're still my friends, but, but when I went to my 20th class reunion, people were like, you're a what? <laughs> Explain yourself. Um, So, okay, but the man was healed. What about when suffering lingers and and suffering lasts? Blindness in John has every bit as much to do with physical sight as with spiritual sight. We have to recognize and just name that miraculous healings are not normative. They are are comparatively few and far between exceptions to the norm. Now, they happen. They do still happen today. Dr. Craig Keener's book on miracles records dozens of modern-day well, hundreds really of all kinds of miracles, but dozens of instances verified by doctors of, of, of blind eyes being opened after prayer. But in some way, this enhances the ache, doesn't it? Because if God never did it at all, we could just kind of shrug our shoulders and just be like, well, this is, that just doesn't happen. This is my lot in life. But knowing he can do it leaves us wondering why he doesn't sometimes when we beg for it. So knowing that he can often doesn't make it better. It almost makes the sting worse. Now, in this book we've asked you to engage with, some of you are reading Interior Freedom by Jacques Philippe. He encourages us, he encourages us very wisely, very prophetically, I think, to consent to suffering, to use his language. Now, not in a passive victimhood, masochistic, like we're not supposed to like, just seek it out and, and delight in it. We're supposed to consent to it because suffering will happen. And we can choose to, in a sense, welcome it or not. Now, it's not easy, of course. It may be, as my friend put it, the the fundamental abandonment that faith requires. To trust God in the midst of suffering is is the fundamental abandonment that faith requires of us. Really hard. But it's to suffer, to, to really suffer. To lament, yes, to grieve, yes, and finally, to move into an attitude of simple trust. 
God will work all things for good. He will. I trust him. Now, the most painful suffering, he says, is the suffering we reject. He says it's like a blow received with clenched muscles that hurts more than a blow received while relaxed. Consenting to suffering lessens, lessens its power. It's, it's misguided to seek to avoid all fallenness that might fall on us. We must come to peace with the terms. Here are the terms. Life is still good and still beautiful, even when it includes great difficulty. And it does for many of us. But life is still good and still beautiful, even amidst great difficulty. Now, why do we want a theodicy? Why do we want an explanation so badly? Well, understanding is good. It's given us minds. We should use them. You should engage, I think, with theodicies. They're interesting and might be helpful. But I wonder if our motivation ultimately has more to do with power. You know, we can master the situation through the intellect. Might it come from insecurity? I need to understand why this happened in order, or why this is happening in order to sort of feel secure in it. Like the more I know, the more secure I, I... Philippe says the only true security in life lies in the certainty that God is faithful and can never abandon us because his fatherly tenderness is irrevocable. That's, that's where security comes from, not from the perfect theodicy, not from understanding everything perfectly, but from believing that God is faithful and will not abandon you. It doesn't come from understanding, it comes from believing in Christ. And what is more, when we look at Christ, we see him doing what? We see him consenting to suffering, don't we? He says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. He goes to the cross not as a victim, but as a volunteer. He consents to immense suffering so that one day he might undo your suffering and my suffering and all suffering. So the disciples' question to Jesus, we could say a lot more, but it, we, we've begun to see how it tells us a little bit about the, the nature of suffering. What about the Pharisees' response? Their response shows us the nature of spiritual blindness or pride. Now, they're really upset because Jesus is healed on the Sabbath. It's a big no-no. But they were also threatened by his power. In verse 34, you'll see that they, they sort of tacitly admit that, that this now-seeing man standing in front of them was born blind because they say, you were born in sin, meaning we admit that you were born blind. They've acknowledged that a miracle has happened. Yet, they are more concerned to show contempt for this man and his former condition than pleasure for his present restoration because it happened in a way they didn't understand, they didn't agree with. The blind pride of their hearts is seen here. So what happens when God works in the world and in the lives of others in ways that don't benefit you or that you don't understand? It can make you grumpy, can't it? Can God healed some blind beggar on the Sabbath without even asking me first. Can you believe it? You know? well, but why, why now and not then? Why them and not me? If I were God, I would have done it very differently. Now, these sentiments are normal, of course. But we need to be careful not to let them fill our eyes, blind us. Because Jesus' closing words in this scene warn us well. Again, the message translation reads, beginning in verse 39, Jesus said to them, I, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, so that those who have, seen, who, that who have never seen will see, and those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. And some of the Pharisees overheard him and said, Does that mean you're calling us blind? Jesus said, if you were really blind, you would be blameless. But since you claim to see everything so well, you're accountable for every fault and failure. 
The blind man received both physical and spiritual sight. The Pharisees possessed natural sight, thought that they possessed spiritual sight. But their reaction to Jesus showed they were blinded by self-preoccupation. John is a, is a literary master. Two times in the story, on the lips of the Pharisees, we find the words, we know, we know. And two times in the story, on the lips of the formerly blind man, we find the words, I do not know, I do not know, evidencing his humility. So the blind man meets Jesus in humility. He welcomes his touch. He cooperates with his words. And finally, what does he do? He worships. Jesus finds him. He's been kicked out of the synagogue. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 35. The man said, point him out to me, sir, so that I can believe, to believe in him. And Jesus said, you're looking right at him. Don't you recognize my voice? Master, I believe, the man said, and worshiped him. So the no longer blind man's response to Jesus tells us a little bit about how we can suffer and how we can have spiritual sight. We can worship. Well, you might think easy for him to do. I mean, he was healed after all. Yes. He'd also been kicked out of the synagogue for his relationship with Jesus, which means he lost socially, he lost relationally, he lost emotionally. I'm sure he suffered economic loss. This was a a radical loss for him, but he worshiped. He did not worship because he understood Jesus perfectly. He didn't worship because his life no longer had any hardship. He was, he was not worshiping because Jesus promised him he'd never suffer again. He, he worshiped because he came to believe that Jesus is the Salvatore, the, the Salve, the Savior of the world. Now you have ways that fallenness has fallen on you. You carry them in your heart. You carry them in your body. Some of you may have been graced with a miracle somewhere, somewhere along the way. Many of you haven't. I don't understand why that is. I told the story in the first service that came to mind of a minor miracle in my life. I've prayed for lots of healing. And one time I was studying abroad in in Spain, my junior year of college, 2003. And I had to walk 30 minutes to class and 30 minutes back two times a day. So a lot of walking. And towards the middle of my time there, I had a bone spur, I think, in my heel. And walking became extremely painful. And I was also playing soccer every day, and that was really fun for me. So I started praying that God would heal my foot. Um, And he did. I was just sitting on my bed one day and I felt a tingling in in my heel and then it was gone and I never felt it again. Um, I also, during that trip, remember distinctly praying for um, him to heal my eyesight so I wouldn't have to wear glasses anymore. He didn't do that. Um, I've also prayed hundreds of times for other things where I didn't see the result. I, I trusted God in his time would answer the prayer, but so I don't know. I just don't get it. Why them? Why them? Why not them? Why now? Why then? I don't, I don't know. There's an ache there, and there's a mystery there. But the comfort, I'm telling you, is not going to be found in the theodicy. It's not going to be found in understanding at all until one day we do. But for now, it's found in the bread and the wine, in the, in the mysterious presence of Jesus with us, by the Spirit. His presence is like a balm. In the waters of baptism, his, his life is now wed to yours. You are united with Christ. Ego e me. I am. It's like you, your identity and his are so intertwined if you are baptized follower of Christ. Do not trust, like the Pharisees, your own way of seeing the world. Gandalf reminds us, even the very wise cannot see all ends. You can't see as God sees. Now, that can hurt, but there is in the end one thing to fix the eyes of your heart upon, and that's this truth, that Jesus is Lord. 
This means that one day, not only your wounds, but all wounds will be healed. Eventually, you will be able to look back on that chapter in your story where you were healed, finally, of that thing, of that sorrow, of that grief, of that chronic pain, of that loss, of that tragedy. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning, says the psalmist. Christ the Lord is bringing you into new creation without blindness and without disease, without loss, without sorrow, without tears. So when you don't understand, worship him. When you can't see, worship him. When your world is dark, worship him. As you do, Christ is the light of the world. He will scatter the darkness from before your path. In other other words, friends, when you can't see, you can see Jesus always. So look upon him. And Father, we pray that, that as we bring you our sorrows and the things on our hearts, the, things, the ways fallenness has fallen on us, and the things that we don't understand, we grieve them and we lament them. We pray that you would help our hearts to remain trusting. Give us faith. Help us to fix our eyes on you in the midst of difficulty. And that as we do, you, the light of the world, would indeed scatter the darkness from before our path. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.